This is Macro Voices, the free weekly financial podcast targeting professional finance, high net worth individuals, family offices, and other sophisticated investors. Macro Voices is all about the brightest minds in the world of finance and macroeconomics telling it like it is, bullish or bearish, no holds barred. Now, here are your hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Serezna. Macro Voices episode 363 was produced on February 16th, 2023. I'm Eric Townsend. This episode of Macro Voices was made possible by Respect Energy, a leading European trader of renewable energy and a one-stop shop for all green energy investors. Mr. Cycles himself, ECRI co-founder Lakshmana Chuthan returns as this week's feature interview guest. We'll revisit Lok's recession call from last summer, which he's still committed to. We'll also examine the growth, business, and inflation cycles, along with ECRI's leading indicators, which are plumbing lows never seen before, except during the depths of the 2008 market crash. And I'm Patrick Serezna. Listeners, be sure to stay tuned for our post-game segment after Eric's feature interview with Lack as Eric, Nick, and I discuss the charts in the S&P 500, NASDAQ, VIX, gold, oil, and more. Now, Eric, before we move on to the feature interview with Lack, let's uh, cover some crude oil, starting with those EIA inventories. EIA printed a massive 16.3 million barrel build on inventory, which normally would be extremely bearish. Cushing, Oklahoma, building 659,000 barrels. Gasoline, building 2.3 million barrels. The only drawdown on the board was distillates down 1.3 million barrels. U.S. production holding steady at 12.3 million barrels. Tape action, brief down move, which of course there has to be after such a massively bearish inventory report, only lasted a few minutes and then retraced to a new high of the day before the 2.30 close. As seen repeatedly for the last eight weeks, the market is holding its prices and ignoring extremely bearish inventory builds. And after eight builds in a row, even I'm scratching my head saying, boy, I didn't see this coming. We're actually seeing a stabilization of the crude oil market starting to rebuild that desperately needed inventory, meaning that maybe that crisis of lack of inventory that was uh, so devastating to the market is maybe finally starting to stabilize. Well, gee, that's an awfully odd time for President Biden to choose to announce yet another 26 million barrels to be drawn down from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in coming months. And this, of course, came after he had promised to refill the SPR starting this month, which he later reneged on. Now, our friend Dr. Anas Alhaji predicted all of this, saw it coming several months ago and even made a video about it. We'll do our best to get him scheduled back onto the show in the next several weeks so that we can get an update from him. My favorite adage is you care more about the market's reaction to inventory than you care about the actual inventory print. We saw yet another example of what should have been a super bearish inventory report. Market spikes down for a good 10-15 minutes and all of a sudden we're back off to the races to a new high on the day. Now, I still want to see a closing print above 80 spot 96, call it $81 roughly. That's the 100-day continuation moving average. That's where all of the past rallies have failed. If we get a close above that level, it would be a very bullish sign signaling a new uptrend. 
But right now, we've got slow stochastics that are high and wavering. Market seems like maybe it's starting to roll over. So there's plenty of room for another price cycle to the downside before that happens. But the big signal that I'm watching for is going to be that daily close over $81 on WTI. Well, this week's featured interview guest is ECRI co-founder Lakshman Achuthan. Eric, why did we invite Lak back on as a guest this week? Patrick, it's been more than six months since we had Locke on the show, and particularly, I've been really thinking a lot about the call that he made and several other people made last summer, saying that by now, we ought to be in recession. Uh, A lot of people think we are in recession, but it's not as deep and uh, difficult of a recession as I was expecting it to be by now. So I wanted to get an update from Locke on whether he's still committed to that recession call and what he sees on the horizon. Well, Eric's interview with Lakshman Achuthan is coming up as Macro Voices continues right after this message from our sponsor. If you invest to bring about a world powered by green energy, you should meet Respect Energy, a leading European trader of renewable energy that serves as a one-stop shop for green energy investors in Europe. Respect Energy brings together independent power producers, accredited and institutional investors holding assets in renewables, or undertaking investments in new green energy production, such as wind and solar photovoltaic power plants. More than 600 institutional and accredited investors have already entrusted Respect Energy with the sale of their electricity production, portfolio management, O&M services, EPC, and project development. If you want to invest in green energy in Europe with the help of a trusted partner, contact Respect Energy today and ask for a tailor-made solution. For more information, visit respect.energy. And now with this week's special guest, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Joining me now is ECRI co-founder Lakshman Achuthan. As usual, Lok prepared a terrific slide deck to accompany this week's interview. You'll find the download link in your research roundup email. If you don't have a research roundup email, it means you're not yet registered at macrovoices.com. Just go to our homepage, click the red button above Locke's picture that says looking for the downloads. Locke, it's great to have you back. Last time that we had you on, I think last summer sometime, you had growing conviction toward a recession call. And uh, it seemed that was my view at the time, too. It still seems to me like even though maybe we've got Jay Powell making a victory lap claiming that he has uh, achieved some sort of soft landing, uh, I'm not necessarily persuaded that there's still no recession coming. I think it, it's just taken a little bit longer than I expected. How do you see it and what are the cycles telling you? Eric, thank you so much for having me back. We, we do still have a recession call on that hasn't changed. And as you said, we, we did talk last summer. Uh, we were talking about how we were building that recession call, the conviction around that recession call. And, and if you'll recall, it was predicated on our, on our leading indicators of, of major sectors of the economy. And, and um, we had a strong downturn in the goods sector, in, the, in, in manufacturing, and in construction. And, uh, you know, that's pretty much happening. That's, that hasn't gone away. And on top of that, you get uh, more aggressive Fed tightening. I think 
most people's recession forecast uh, that that we saw last year was um, built upon the um, kind of surprisingly aggressive Fed, you know, quote unquote, surprisingly aggressive Fed starting around July when they started going 75 basis points per meeting and hiking. And that's very different than our recession call. Our recession call is not built on on that. And so, uh, as you mentioned in the in the lead in, with uh, the Fed approaching some sort of uh, you know victory lap or whatever, and then the market kind of getting excited about the potential for that, there's the idea that there's a soft landing. Now, that may be possible if your entire recession call was predicated on the Fed tightening, but if like ECRI, and I don't think there's a lot of places like ECRI actually that we're doing it based on on the drivers of the cycle. Those are still cycling down. I mean, our analysis is different because we've been doing this a very long time for several generations. And so there's a lot of advancements in how you monitor the drivers of the cycles. And watching those, the recession call is in full effect. And we should we should get into that. I mean, I, I think that's an interesting part of our of our discussion uh, that we could have today. Let's talk about page six in your slide deck because I remember this conversation specifically from last time we spoke. The phrase "hiking rates into a global recession," and I kind of rolled my eyes and thought, "Oh boy, here we go." The Fed is so focused on inflation that they're hiking rates into an oncoming global recession. They're going to make it much worse. They're going to blow things up. Well, to my surprise, I mean, we've got lots and lots of rate hikes. They didn't really blow things up as much as I thought. And I suppose the counter argument would be now they seem to, they haven't started easing yet, but it sounds like they're slowing down or almost done hiking. And it hasn't really blown everything up yet. I suppose it's understandable that Jay Powell thinks he's achieved a soft landing and everything's going to be fine. So should we be less concerned now that they're not hiking rates as aggressively into this recession? You know, in a word, no. I think, you know, that the the recession kind of uh, train has left the station. Things have have, uh, transpired or are kind of unfolding and propagating through the economy that I don't think uh, slowing down the pace of rate hikes gives you a free pass on. So on page six, uh, you're looking at, um, there's a lot of information on that chart. You you have a 21 country long leading index. That does not include share prices, uh, which are a shorter leading indicator of the economy. And um, this is for the, you know, it's like over over 80% of world GDP is, anticipated, the cyclical direction is anticipated by that top line, the 21 country long leading index. And as you can see, the come down in that index in, in 21 into 22 is, is in, the, in, the, in the average lead there is, you know, it's, it is a long leading index. It's three quarters or, or, or maybe sometimes a little more in some cases. And that decline there is a recessionary decline. We haven't seen, it's worse than the decline we saw uh, around the COVID recession, we haven't seen it since the Great Recession. Uh, something this week, and and the only reason the Great Recession was a little worse was because something broke. Remember, you know, the financial market seized up after Lehman collapsed, and so the long leading index jerked down a little bit. 
further than it is now. Here, as you say, without anything obvious having broken, that the weakness in that index is just undeniable. What's really striking, and this is what gives me pause when the argument is that we'll have a soft landing or a mild recession or whatever you want to call it, a softish recession. Um, I've heard all kinds of phrases, somewhat tortured, but typically you don't have the breadth of, of world central banks raising rates that we have here. Uh, so we have a central bank policy diffusion index on the bottom part of, of the chart on page six. And you could see it is just edge off of its all-time tightest, highest reading in terms of the diffusion of rate hikes by central banks around the world. And, and this may be inconvenient, but that stuff, those rate hikes act on the economy, on economic activity with long and variable lags. You know, if, a, if, if the markets are free to react instantly, but the economy itself, it acts with long and variable lags. And um, you might hope that the lag is shorter or whatnot, but I, I'm not sure that it is. And so the rate hikes that we've seen in, in say, the, you know, since certainly since last summer are only maybe beginning to hit the economy now. And we had a recession call on before that based on the big cyclical components of the economy, which are cycling down pretty darn hard. So I don't know how severe this recession is ultimately going to be, but this would argue more for it being more severe than, than for it being mild. And, and one other component, which is kind of buried in this chart to consider, is that global recessions tend to be more severe recessions. So you can think, you know, 709, China barely dodged a recession and then really put on the gas with, with uh, liquidity. In 81, 82, it was a pretty broad recession. Those are international, global longer recessions there they, they those in both of those instances they lasted uh, well over a year so i'm not sure that this is a mild recession maybe it is but i'm not sure that it is well your long leading index dropping down to where it is now i mean the only time at least this chart only goes back to 94 we don't see the uh, 79 through 83 period where there was a lot of economic weakness but if i look at where we are now it's only the depths the absolute depths of october 08 that's lower on this chart than where we are right now that's a, a little bit concerning that's saying something, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, that's why that's why I'm just not on the on the look. I'm always happy, but I don't think there we dodged a recession here, and and we will recover on the other side, mind you. These indicators help uh, call recoveries too, right? So in the depths of uh, that oh uh, seven oh nine recession in April of oh nine, based on these indicators, we called a recovery, the recession to end in the middle of oh nine when. The G20 was talking about a global depression. And in April of 2020, we also saw this, these indicators really skyrocketing. So you can't pick the times you like to look at these. <laughs> you know, these are particularly good indicators on the cyclical direction and, and recessions and recoveries. And uh, 
they nailed the recovery calls. They've nailed these downturn calls. And right now they're telling us, hey, you're, you're looking at a, a, a broad-based international recession. And, and we know, by the way, we'll get to this in a, in a bit, but we know that China went in recession. That's the first time China went into recession since 1989. Not a lot of people know that. I don't even think a lot of Chinese uh, analysts know that. Uh, so the last recession in China was around Tiananmen Square in 1989, 88, 89. And, and, and so they just popped out of one. And when they popped out of one, it's quite interesting because, you know, it's different. They're, they're very different than the United States, but there's this kind of mechanistic pop in activity that you get when you open up the economy post uh, lockdowns and stuff. And so they, they've, they've popped out on a, on a kind of a mechanistic way out of, out of recession. But it's unclear that they have a lot of cyclical follow through. And that's important when you want to build a, you know, a short to medium term kind of positive outlook. You want to see the cyclical drivers, which are going to kind of take the lead in the next uh, quarter, two or three quarters. Uh, you want to see them starting to cycle to the upside in a, in a, in a virtuous way. And, and that hasn't clearly started uh, yet as far as we could see, even though they've, they've left recession on a mechanistic way. Locke, your work focuses on growth cycles, business cycles, and inflation cycles. I definitely want to come back to inflation, but let's touch on the business cycle yet, because I guess my question is, has this recession that we've been talking about now since, I don't know, last time I talked to you was, I think, on August or something, um, has it started yet and it's just a little bit shallower than we were expecting, or is it not even started yet? And uh, I guess you've got job losses on page eight. How does that fit into the story? Yeah, I think jobs are the the big uh, issue, right, on everybody's uh, mind. Because when you when you get a five hundred print, how could you be in a recession? And that's a reasonable question. Look, I get, I get it. We had a mirror image of this, by the way, in during the early days of the Great Recession, the first six months of it, where jobs were negative in the beginning of the Great Recession and GDP was positive. So. People kind of said, oh, ignore the jobs, GDP is positive. Now, you know, GDP doesn't look so hot. And the no recession kind of camp is starting to say, well, don't look at that, look at jobs. Now, when we get to jobs, and, and page eight is uh, something that I don't think anyone really knows, gets into um, recessions and job losses. And, and the first thing to know is that during inflation, this is not related to the chart, but during inflationary periods, it's not unusual for employment downturns to begin months after the start of recession. You can be inside a recession and still have jobs growth. We saw that in 73, 75, and we saw that in the 1980 recession. 73, 75 really stands out because it was at eight months until jobs went negative inside the recession. In 80, it was a couple months of positive jobs growth, and then they uh, began to to, to contract. The thinking here, when we're looking at this, is that it, it, it may be because of the so-called money illusion. During inflationary periods, you know, businesses are kind of enamored with their nominal revenues, which are holding up, uh, even though they're selling less stuff and, and their own costs are rising. And, and so they're like, eh, you know, we could, you know, it's not immediately clear that their margins are getting crushed and that they're actually not profitable. That, that awareness arises a little later. And on top of that, in this 
recession, the, the, the approach to this recession. We're in the aftermath of COVID still. Okay. We lost millions of people out of the workforce. We've had, um, kind of erratic demand first in the goods sector and then swapped over to the services side where you've had like skyrocketing demand. First it was in goods, which is now uh, on the downswing very clearly. And, and recently, and even currently you have solid demand in the service sector side of things. And so now we come to this chart. So you have some labor hoarding. The punchline there is that you have labor hoarding because you're like, hey, my nominal revenues look pretty good, and it was really hard to hire people, so I don't want to get rid of them right away. Maybe there's a soft landing. I shouldn't do it. All these things are the things managers are trying to think through right now. And now get to this slide. So one thing that becomes apparent, so there's a zero line there, and um, below that are job losses, the share of recessionary job losses. And the blue part of the bar shows you that for a very long time, this is a chart covering 70 years, um, for a very long time, for the majority of the time, the goods sector accounts for the majority of job losses, even though the service sector accounts for 85% of, of non-agricultural jobs. It's The goods producing sector is about 15%. But it's the good sector that's responsible for the lion's share of job losses during recessions. And this has been consistently the case through uh, into the early 21st century. So job losses, uh, good sector job losses account for 77% to 134% of total recessionary job losses. And the reason they can account for 134, which is kind of weird, how, how, you know, how do you get that number? It's because service sector jobs can, on occasion, grow during a recession. doesn't immediately feel like that's possible, but that's the reality of how things work. So to the right-hand side of the chart, you have uh, some interesting things where, where there's some red portions to the bar, uh, which are service sector job losses. In the Great Recession, the 0709 recession, uh, we had job losses kind of evenly split between goods and service sectors. And the reason behind that is because of the financial crisis, uh, which triggered a really unusually large number of financial service job losses. And of course, in 2020, with a COVID, quote unquote, COVID recession, uh, look, that was caused by shutting down everything that was people facing services. So of course you're going to get a lot of services job losses. I don't, I don't think that's like a new pattern. <laughs> I hope not. So as we return to normal, we're not in that kind of COVID craziness, right? The cyclically sensitive goods sector uh, is going to punch far above its weight in driving recessionary job losses, even despite the post-COVID tight labor markets. Uh, and so, you know, our insight is that that's where, like typically normal, the job losses are going to eventually come as this recession takes hold. Okay. And, and, and one last part on, on, on like, are, are we there yet kind of thing? You know, my mentor, Jeffrey Moore, who is the father of leading indicators, counseled us that you'd be doing very well as a forecaster if you could recognize a recession as it was starting. And so today, with the data in hand, forget about the markets for a second, with the data in, we have in hand, 
Housing is in a downturn. Real consumer spending is falling, and so is industrial production. Employment is still rising, but sometimes that happens inside of a recession. So can you really be that sure about where we are in the business cycle? I mean, you're hoping for immaculate disinflation, you know, but it, it, it hasn't worked that way in the past. And yes, we have an inflation cycle downturn, and it can turn down pretty hard at times. That happens with inflation cycles. But I have to tell you, that's typically in conjunction with a recession. Locke, let's take a deeper dive on inflation and the inflation outlook. I can tell you quite authoritatively that the most important thing to figure out in this macro economy is inflation. Mm -hmm. What the heck is going to happen next? <laughs> um, I just don't know the answer. That's all. And boy, the number of smart people I've spoken to, so many people saying, look, this is a new secular trend. We're never going back to down to 2%. Of course, with COVID behind us, we'll come off a little bit, but you know, we'll be lucky to get below 5%, maybe 4% if you're really lucky and there's a, a, a deep recession, but we're never going back to 2%. And then just two weeks ago, I had Alex Garevich, who's a super smart guy, saying, no, 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 we're going to like negative single-digit percentages uh, on inflation. We're going way below 2%, way below zero into outright deflation. So, boy, so many different views. How do we make sense of this? And is there a way using your cycle's work to maybe get away from the subjectivity of a lot of personal macro views and talk about what the data says? Yeah, thank you. And and I want to be, I'm going to use a horrible kind of, uh, not horrible, I'm like a dad. It's like a dad joke. Uh, we're monetarists, but with an eye right? We monitor the data. <laughs> and and, uh, and, and in, in looking at the slide, uh, I think it's five, is, is my slide on uh, inflation. It's not about current inflation. It's about the 70s, because that's part of the fear that you were, you were talking about just now, some structurally embedded uh, inflation. And uh, it's, it, this is also on Powell's mind, okay? So first and foremost, and, and then I appreciate you said Alex was on uh, recently saying uh, disinflation or deflation, actually deflation, right? So I would, I would go in between, look, we're going to be in between the four and the, and the negative um, on a cyclical basis. And um, it remains to be seen what's going on structurally. The Fed has something to say about that. And, you know, external events have something to say about that. You know, the Fed doesn't control everything. So People like to think about the 70s in various ways uh, and the inflationary time and even about Burns and Arthur Burns, the Fed chairman for part of the time, and then Volcker who came in after him and quote unquote killed inflation. Now, so we're going to look at it cyclically on this, uh, on this chart on page five. And um, first, I'd like to, to say about the current inflation cycle, it's, in a, it's totally intact but it's cyclical. It's a cyclical downturn in inflation. And if mission accomplished for the Fed, and we were talking earlier in the call about uh, a victory lap and maybe getting ready for a victory lap, if, if mission accomplished for the Fed is, is simply a cyclical downturn in inflation, that's going to fall far short of securing Mr. Powell's legacy. And, and I think he has said, hey, I'd rather be Volcker than Burns. He said so, things to that effect. And, and here you can begin to see the, the reason why. So the, the chart goes from 67 to 83. So you see how inflation was uh, before the 70s. 
and you see uh, several inflation cycles evident just by CPI inflation going up and down, and you see the recessions uh, shaded in there as well. And as inflation's cycling down during the 70s, there's a huge amount of pressure from politicians, you know, it could either be in Congress or the, or, or the White House, on Burns to back off, okay? Uh, coming out of the 73, 74, uh, 75 recession, I mean, it was no joke. There was some, there was some serious heat on Mr. Burns, and, and he did back off. And, and to give you a little sense, uh, you know, the AFL-CIO president, George Meany, back then, called him, quote-unquote, a national disaster. And Senator uh, uh, Hubert Humphrey compared him to uh, Simon Legree, who is, of course, the villainous slave owner in Uncle Tom's cabin. That's the kind of incoming fire that this that Burns was getting for not cutting rates fast enough. But you see that the cyclical troughs in inflation keep going up, right? They're pretty low in 67. They're, they're two-ish. In 72, they're a t- tiny bit higher. Uh, in 76, now they're, it's troughing out around 5% and is in a clear cyclical upturn before uh, the Iranian hostage event uh, in 79, uh, where we had inflation actually blow out approaching uh, 15%. And then you see Volcker comes in after the 80 recession there, and he's he eases, right? He, he has the same incoming fire that, that, that Burns had. And, and he eases and inflation, you could see it's, it's sticky, it's elevated, it's structurally, the inflation mindset has taken hold. Okay. And it takes a severe tightening by the Fed and a severe recession to knock it all the way back below a three handle, which is ultimately what happened after the 81, uh, 82 recession. So, by the time Volcker was there, the difference of, uh, about his interaction with, say, the American psyche is that people were sick and tired of inflation. So he didn't ultimately, in that 81-82 recession, get the kind of pushback on the sustained tightening. That was very different from the Burns uh, experience. So, so in that respect, uh, Volcker was, was a bit more lucky, I guess, than, than Burns. So now today... What's Powell to do? He he says uh, we got some disinflation in goods, and uh, am I going to call that success? And we're good to go. I mean, we haven't even touched on the structural things, onshoring, uh, you know, geopolitical stuff going on, uh, structural shifts in in employment that is making employment tighter. All of those. Oh, by the way, disastrous productivity growth. So all of those are inflationary and. Fairly significant ways, right? So, if on a cyclical basis you get an inflation cycle downturn, I, you know that may not be enough. And in fact, I don't think it is enough to say, "Okay, job done, mission accomplished." There's something that's particularly curious to me about this chart on page five, Locke, which is if I think about what I know conceptually about how inflation works and how recessions work, you would think just as you as you do see at the uh, at the 1970 recession that well, what happens is inflation is kind of running out of control when the recession starts. 
that's going to be when inflation is going to roll over. And of course, if that's your expectation, then we're seeing inflation rolling over right now. Maybe it's because the recession is starting. But then I look at 73, 75, and it's like, wait a minute, for like a couple of years, inflation continued to increase during recession. And it didn't peak till the very end of that recession. Was that because of some policy or, or you know, external factor? Yeah, or? you've got some oil embargo stuff in the middle of the Okay, so there. that's what's driving it. 73 oil embargo. You got is what's 73 oil that. embargo. You got 79, you got the Iranian uh, hostage stuff. So these are oil things. There's, you know, there's also to the left-hand side of the chart, right? I'm, 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 I'm talking in broad brushstrokes here, right? But the 60s into the early 70s, eh, you know, inflationary mindset's a little bit of a new thing, right? It, 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 it's kind of invisible. You don't necessarily exactly see it. People don't think about it the way you and I think about it when we watch the CPI this morning. You know, they don't think that way. But by the second half of the chart, boy, oh boy, this is a pain in the ass. I, I can't, excuse my French there. You know, I can't make ends meet. I've got to tighten my belt. I don't have enough money to pay for stuff, even though in theory I'm getting paid more on a nominal basis. So, that's where, and we put this red line there. That's technically, literally, that's six point nine percent for the t- entire time of this sixty-seven to eighty-three. That's the average uh, rate of inflation there, just about seven percent. That's actually, if you're a Fed chairman or a policymaker, actually, I would say is also responsible to a degree. You know, to to that's the the real target. You you, you don't want that thing getting elevated. Everybody says they wanted it two percent. That's a healthy one or whatever. It started maybe with Greenspan or so. And then onwards from there, it's like, or maybe it was Bernanke who did the targeting. I, I can't, I, it's blurry, but it's Greenspan didn't target. So it was Bernanke or Yellen. And that's low. We're nowhere near that. And you can see the key thing from this chart is a cyclical downturn in inflation, even if it's from recession, which eventually kills inflation. And mind you, the trough in inflation isn't until after the recession's over, you see the lower highs here are the problem. So if you don't, if you don't get to the really, really low readings, right, then you run the risk that this red line is moving up from two to three to four to five or higher percent. It probably won't go to seven, but uh, it could certainly go, would be, be well elevated from two, the longer term trend and inflation rate and we haven't talked about, look, we have structurally tight labor market. You've got geopolitical stuff going on. You've got, it's not very short term, but medium term, you, you may have some onshoring stuff. Uh, you've got some fiscal spending, right? So you, you, there's plenty of things out there that can, that can longer term elevate inflation on top of which there are cycles. You mentioned the geopolitical aspect. Let's talk about that next because I don't know if you think about this in cycles, but it feels like a very long-term cycle to me that there are periods of history when governments around the world are mostly focused on globalization and making money through free trade. And, you know, we're, we're going to move our uh, a lot of our manufacturing over to, to China, let them do it because they can do it cheaper. Everybody's making money and everybody's happy. You get other periods like the Cold War where there's just an appetite for some reason among geopolitical 
political leaders for a state of war or a state of cold war, you know, anticipation of war and a lot of of preparation for war. It feels to me like the cycle has shifted. I don't think this Ukraine thing has very much to do with Ukraine. There's no way the United States sends upwards of 100 billion with a B dollars uh, of aid for the sake of the independence of, you know, the Donetsk region of Ukraine. Um, that's not what's going on. Uh, this is a proxy war that has to do with a new appetite for conflict between the world's major superpowers, United States, China, and Russia. And it feels to me like it's just the beginning. I, I think that Ukraine is the first proxy war in a new cycle, but I can't figure out what the cycle is. Can you help me? Well, I'm not a geopolitical expert. I could say that I think one thing we should notice is that China hasn't been in recession since Tiananmen Square, and Tiananmen Square freaked out the Chinese government, right, uh, because you, the, of that level of protest. So now they they just had a recession. You know that's not comfortable areas for them uh, at all. And um, Russia as a commodity, I mean, if you get down to the the economy, if you will. It's a commodity kind of base situation for them, and uh, we we've got a pretty strong global industrial growth downturn related to the global recession. So, you know, you've seen uh, oil prices. I, I know it was it was. Uh, well, I think last year a lot of Wall Street houses were forecasting kind of sky high energy prices based on a number of things. It wasn't just this. Um, but the cyclical weakness in demand growth has energy prices staying well below kind of what was feared. That that hurts hurts them. So how do you distract from you know maybe not having great economic policies? I don't know. You know you you you've got to say hey look over here, and uh, someone else is the problem. And when you look at you know, if you come to the U.S., there's obviously deficit and fiscal spending issues, and either you have kind of taxing and, and spending, and like that's where the debate is. And we rely on the Fed to kind of give liquidity or tighten up uh, every once in a while to as some sort of economic policy. These are insufficient, right? Because in the really big picture. And, and and this goes back probably like three or four or five macro voice uh, interviews, Eric. Uh, but in the really big picture, the fundamental problem is a long-term decline in trend growth. And that's built on weak productivity growth and uh, declining uh, workforce population. So if, you're, if your workforce population is declining and you don't have good productivity growth, your long-term trend growth of GDP is diminishing and every single thing about policy or budgets or interest rates or whatever is all built off of your long-term trend growth rate, which is going in the wrong direction. Now, the U.S. is not, we didn't dodge this. We're totally uh, in, in this too, but relatively speaking, we're a little better off Russia and, and and China are on those scores of demographic growth and, and productivity growth are really bad. And uh, most developed nations are hurting. And even the developing nations are hurting. I think you've got some productivity growth and some good, decent demographic growth, maybe for Africa and for India. And, and that's not going to pull the world along, right? 
So with some version of kind of slow failure in long-term trend growth, maybe these conflicts are, are, you know, where you kind of point the attention or you pay the attention. I, I don't have a stronger kind of cyclical angle on, on that, however. Let's move on then to another dimension of this that I've been thinking about, which is it seems to me that all this cycles work is based on the the basic concepts of, you know, growth and inflation and jobs and so forth. It's the relationship of labor and productivity and commerce and so forth. It's all based on, you know, the way things have been for hundreds of years. Uh, But then we've got this new trend of AI, artificial intelligence. Uh, It seems like this chat GPT tool, which is still just a prototype, was conceived for the purpose of replacing millions of jobs. You know, customer service wouldn't need to exist if you had the ability to talk to an AI chatbot instead of a human being when you're trying to get your Amazon order that didn't show up resolved. Mm-hmm. Uh, frankly, I'm not looking forward to that future. No. <laughs> uh, I'd rather deal with the human being despite their, their shortcomings. But at times, I think, okay, this is a game changer for the role of labor in the economy. And then I catch myself and I say, well, wait a minute, is it really a game changer or is it just an extension of industrialization? Because we used to do everything by hand and now we've got machinery that that does most things that people used to do by hand. So is this really something different or is it just the next chapter of industrialization? Well, look, it has the potential to be a structural change in the dynamics, the, the labor and inflation and growth dynamics. Maybe it's coming at a good time in the in the sense that we've got record lows in uh, unemployment, right? There's not enough people to work. So even though, and this is like how, how out of whack it is, right? So even though the construction sector is in a cyclical downturn, it's contracting. Activity is contracting in the constructions, you know, both residential, non-residential construction. The really big cycle is contracting and the unemployment rate there is well below half a percent, I think it might it is like point zero point three percent, something crazy, right? So that's totally out of whack. Now you can't get an AI to do construction, right? Uh, but most people, and and that's going to go up now. But most people work in the service sector, eighty five percent. A lot of that could be uh, people facing services. I don't know how the the AI is going to do the 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 one on one physical interactions with people, but for stuff like writing and, 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 and different customer service things online, by all means, it could, it could do that. The problem is, right. The payment, like you still have to pay your workforce. You want productivity growth to, to be going on. Let's say in theory, a huge hunk of people are replaced by AI and then are out of work. You'll have unemployment rise. You'll have Productivity as we measure it by whatever people doing uh, go down, unless you factor in some AI productivity, you may have to, I think somebody, maybe it was Gates or somebody said, you know, you're going to have to tax the robots, (laughs) right? The AI. I don't know. There's going to be all kinds of structural shifts going on. But I also want to point out something else, which is that we've seen cycles right? 
since the dawning really of the uh, industrial revolution has been most clear. And then we, we went from, so we went from a kind of agrarian to industrial revolution, to service sector, to information services or something that we are now focused. And in all of those structural shifts that have occurred in the way people work, the, the majority of people work, we still have cycles. We still have the upswings and downswings. For a large hunk of time, uh, say post-World War II through the Great Recession, you had those cycles start to soften out. The amplitude went down. And so everybody predicted, oh, well, you know, the business cycle's been tamed or something like that. And then you had the Great Recession, right? And then we had the COVID recession, which is slightly different. And here we are kind of going back to the hope, the markets are going back to the hope that eh, it's going to be a mild recession, if at all, even though all this craziness is kind of going on in terms of the intense demand for houses and then the drop in that demand, the intense demand for goods, and then the collapse in the, in the demand for goods. But somehow we're still going to get out of this with a mild recession. It doesn't seem to work that way. I don't know ultimately how this and and maybe covid kind of accelerated some of the ai stuff but now we're we're maybe pausing to kind of digest some of that and and to see how we can actually put it to good work i think it's an interesting kind of um challenge for businesses as they navigate this recession and um look to the next recovery remember now when your demand is falling your unit sales are going down Right, so the even though the nominal prices are holding up, the real activity is is slipping. Now you've got to figure out how to be profitable in that environment, and maybe AI is part of that answer. Locke, final question: I know you deal with a lot of clients at Ecri who are probably focused more, uh, not so much on the esoterics we're talking about, but okay, what does all this cycle stuff mean in terms of what the market does next? What are you telling them? Well, yeah, absolutely, because they're looking at like that institutional memory. Hey, it looks like a recession. We understand your your analysis, but the market's going up and the Fed is, uh, you know, starting to slow down or something. You know, are we missing something? And and one of the things to understand is that such rallies are pretty much par for the course. Uh, we've had 10% plus S&P rallies around the beginning of uh, many, many recessions, including 73, 75, 1980, recession, 2001 recession, and the 07, the Great Recession, the 0709 recession, same one. And the really big one, just to put a, a pin in this, okay, was a seven-week rally at the beginning of uh, 2001, the beginning of the 2001 recession. It began in March of 01. And um, at the time, there was a 19% rally from uh, early April through uh, the, the latter part of May in the belief that we dodged the recession. And then, and then, of course, uh, stock prices turn back down. So, so what we do is is we manage, we help our clients manage cycle risk. And the reason I say that quickly, but it's 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 really important. the The reason we're able to do that is is really those generations of cycle research that I that I'm mentioning. And and we cover 22 economies around the world. We can see some very interesting patterns. Uh, getting the recession call is is important, but so is getting the recovery call. And 
and we just have a very good real-time track record. It's, it's not perfect, but I'm confident in saying it's unrivaled. Well, Locke, I can't thank you enough for a terrific interview. Before I let you go, just tell our listeners who may be interested in those services that you offer at ECRI how they can contact you and find out more about what you do. Great. Well, uh, I'd love to, in this post-COVID days, I'd love to meet you. So come to Bryant Park. Uh, we're at 505th Avenue. Um, but uh, you give us a call. You go to businesscycle.com. We're on Twitter. It's at Business Cycle. We're on LinkedIn. Uh, Economic Cycle Research Institute. And I need to give a shout out to, to everybody at ECRI uh, who makes me sound intelligent. I have a very, very good team of researchers with me. Patrick Ceresna, Nick Galarnik, and I will be back as Macro Voices continues right here at macrovoices.com. Now, back to your hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Ceresna. Eric, it was great to have Lack back on the show. I couldn't agree more with him. You know, so many people are calling for a soft landing, and I'm not saying it can't be a soft landing. It's just too early in the cycle to be able to even come to that conclusion. We don't know the impact of those interest rate hikes. The leading indicators are still turned down, and uh, and there's just a lot of things that are going to be revealed in the next half a year to a year. So it's much more important to kind of go into all of this with a much more neutral view and see what uh, what kind of a recession may come about. Now let's. Get get to that chart deck. Listeners, you're going to find the download link for the post-game chart deck in your research roundup email. If you don't have a research roundup email, it means you're not yet registered on macrovoices.com. Just go to our homepage, macrovoices.com, and click on the red button over Lack's picture that says looking for the downloads. Nick, uh, we're recording this just right after the PPI numbers came out. The market obviously turned uh, on the, to the downside a little bit. Uh, we had to even refresh our charts a little bit before we recorded this. Uh, so let's get to the levels we're watching on this S&P. Did anything change for you here? Absolutely, Patrick. Uh, that was a pretty crazy move after the PPI was released. So right now, as we speak, uh, spot on SPX is about 4110 or so. Uh, expected move looking at the March OPEX now is about 160 points in other direction, which is about a 3.9% move up or down. So the upper expected move is 4270. Current resistance right now is 4120, which was broken previously, but we're not we're not back below that. And next level above that would be 4325. Uh, for the lower expected move, again for the March OPEX, is 3950, and 4,000 should act as heavy support for now. Beyond that, we have support at 3,800, then 3,700, and then 3,500 acting as lows, um, you know, back from October or so. Right. You know, it's interesting uh, for me, uh, we're actually uh, potentially going to start testing some very important uh, lines in the sand in terms of whether the bulls can maintain the trend. My view on the S&P is very simple. Uh, The bulls have been in control. It's above its moving averages. It's above any trend lines. It continues to demonstrate uh, a pattern of accumulation. But recently, in the last few days, we tried to rally back up toward the highs and failed to do so. And so um, maybe, just maybe, it's a little too early to start seeing that the market's getting a little heavy here. Uh, we're now going to approach some very critical support levels. To me, um, 4,100 is the first kind of 
a little line in the sand, but not the major one. Uh, for me, as I drew on the charts here, uh, the levels are much closer to 4,000. That's where, uh, you know, 50-day moving average, the ascending trend line, and a Fibonacci retracement of the uh, that kind of December to February rally all lie. And uh, that's the kind of point where the bulls will really need to defend the line. If uh, we see a, even a pullback here, 50 or 100 points, but the bulls buy the dip and rip it right back to the highs, and February is just going to continue to be uh, a very kind of choppy uh, sideways range bound market. But where I would uh, almost immediately uh, start having red flags that something more ominous may be underway is if we start getting uh, below 4,000 with any momentum. And that's uh, so that's certainly the levels that I'm watching. But none- nonetheless, let's move on to the QQQ. Now, uh, we're recording this pre-market. Obviously, uh, it looks like the- that the Qs are going to open uh, around uh, three. 305 here on the open here. What's your thinking in terms of these levels? Yeah, absolutely. Um, after that PPI data was dumped, we got a huge sell-off right there on open uh, pre-market rather. And current spot on queues is 305. Again, expected move for the March OPEX because you know tomorrow is the February OPEX is about 16 points, which you know, it's about 3.2% move up or down. So the upper expected move there is 321 approximately. Keep in mind, resistance is at 320, then at 330. The lower expected move is 289. Previous resistance should now act as support at 296 or so. Beyond that, we have support at 260 and then 254, which are the lowest from October again. Keep in mind that this earnings season wasn't that great. However, most of these big tech names responded favorably to their reports, aside from perhaps Amazon and Google. So uh, we may see some more volatility ahead. And uh... Nick, you know, the interesting thing uh, for me is, is that there's no doubt that the NASDAQ has shown relative strength in the 2023 year. I mean, we're basically six weeks in and there's no doubt that uh, the NASDAQ blasted off on a relative basis. Uh, And we saw massive underperformance uh, in uh, the defensive sectors, whether it was the healthcare, consumer staples, utilities. And so it was clearly a sector rotation of uh, going back to high beta and uh, into the more volatile names. And this trend has been, uh, you know, something that I think is really important to watch because I think that if the next sell-off was to begin, I feel that that rotation back to defensives will be evident and uh, we should start seeing the NASDAQ underperforming. Clearly, that's not the case yet. And so uh, that's certainly going to be something in my mind to seeing if this trend of outperformance on the NASDAQ uh, persists or whether we start to see it diverge. Uh, Nonetheless, let's move on to the VIX because we were again down in um, uh, towards the uh, the 18 handle and uh, this morning a little bit of a pop back toward 20, but not we're still in the teens. So volatility continues to narrowly consolidate along major previous support lines, but clearly no sign of a major breakout here. What are you watching? So yeah, it's been very interesting this year watching the VIX. Uh, So spot right now is 19.64 as we speak. Um, Expected daily moves in broad markets is about 1.23%. Looking at the chart here again, heavy support at around 18. We've seen numerous pop-offs back to the you know, 30, 35 level off these levels. And an interesting observation that I've had over the past year or so is that since we've re- we've um, released zero-day expiration options for every day of the week on SPX, um, option activity is being suppressed uh, because the volume on the 30-day DTE option activity is much, much lower than it has been historically, which is what the VIX is predicated on. So 
all these larger intraday moves are occurring without corresponding spikes in the VIX. So, you know, it's very, very interesting to watch that. You know, we're seeing these swings intraday, you know, from red to green, you know, where you swing, you know, one and a half, two percent from top to bottom. Meanwhile, the VIX is idle or negative for the day. Right. So very interesting to see here. But again, uh, February OPEX just just uh, concluded and we're rolling over to the March OPEX now. So it's possible we see a spike here, but it's anyone's guess as to what happens right now. Now, on page five, we have the U.S. dollar, which has started to, to turn around as all signs point to further Fed rate hikes, as well as rate, uh, rates remaining higher for longer. Um, you know, we had higher PPI than expected, higher CPI than expected. Retail sales were much stronger than expected, and the non-farm payroll numbers came in much higher than expected as well. So this is all ammunition for the Fed to keep on going higher for longer. Uh, Eric, what are your thoughts here on the dollar? Same story as last week. We're still hugging 104 resistance. 104 was a very important level. It was the top about five years ago in that first big wave up. Then on the way up to that recent high, it was a resistance level. And then it was a support level on the way down. Now it's resistance again on the way up. So I'm watching 104 closely. A breakout above 104 or a firm rejection down from 104 is going to be the tell for the next leg. Ever since last week, show we've just been hovering just below 104 looks like we're trying to break through that level but it hasn't happened yet well for me eric you know the dollar has obviously uh, started to strengthen in the last two weeks crawling a little bit higher you're bang on this 104 level is uh is really really important uh obviously the us dollar yen has already started to break out and followed through this really is all about uh, the euro uh finding support along the 107 level it's going to be really important in my mind because this uh dollar strength has corresponded to some gold weakness and all sorts of other types of uh intermarket relationships. And if the dollar, for whatever reason, broke out with some momentum and really started to advance on a relative basis, it's going to act like a wet blanket uh, over all risk assets. And uh, therefore, uh, watching what the next major move in the dollar is, uh, is just going to be critical. Since you mentioned gold, let's move on to page six, where we have the chart of the gold features. Now, what's your thinking here? Well, I said two weeks ago on Macro Voices that I was eyeing the 38.2% Fib retracement to add to my longs, and sure enough, I just got filled on my first tranche at 1841. Then we saw a nice uh, dead cat bounce all the way up to 1855 on Wednesday evening, but as soon as Europe opened on Thursday morning, that retraced back down. Looking at 1845 as I'm recording now, I won't be surprised if we do go lower than uh, 18. 38, which is the 38.2 fib retracement. I think the scenario for this to be over here, uh, for this to be the bottom of this gold correction, would only be if we were to see a rejection on the dollar index. In other words, it rejects 104 and moves sharply lower and resumes a downtrend. Uh, absent that, I won't be surprised if we do see lower numbers. The technical levels to watch from here are going to be 1796. That's 1796. That's the 50% Fib retracement. Then the next level below that is 1783, actually 1784, which is the 100 day moving average. And then finally, 1753, 1753 is the 61.8% Fib retracement. So those are technical levels to watch. I don't know where this uh, correction is going to bottom. I do think it's a correction. It's probably going to be the dollar index that decides where the next leg comes. 
Yeah, Eric, to me, the uh, the gold is uh, just uh, demonstrate like it reversed literally the same day that the dollar uh, reversed off the bottom. Uh, I know a lot of people are looking at real rates and they're looking at all sorts of different elements. And it's not that those aren't relevant, but really what has stood out over the last year was the inverse correlation of gold to the dollar. It's really just been a cross currency. And I don't see any reason to deviate from that until uh, we see some evidence that you know gold is marching to the beat of its own drum. Um, right now, if uh, 104 level holds on the dollar and we see dollar weakness re-resume, this could be a short-term low on gold. But if we see uh, the, the dollar index ripping at 106, 107, 108, I don't see any reason why gold can't uh, consolidate towards 1800 or even 1750 on the on the downside. I obviously have a, a bullish tilt over the much longer term on gold, but I think in this uh, phase where where the Fed is still tightening and we are moving in toward a recession and risk assets may be, uh, still have turbulent waters ahead of it. I still think that uh, gold is going to uh, have a couple of fake outs, both on the upside and the downside. It's going to be a little bit choppy here on the short term. Moving on, I just want to la- lastly touch on the crude oil chart. I know, Eric, I know you were talking about it uh, in the start of the show. And for me, one thing that's been evident and continues to be evident over uh, the last nine months is that crude oil has been in a, a substantial mean reverting distribution cycle, lower highs, lower lows, uh, every rally is failing. But really what we have seen in the la- uh, since the start of this year is that even though we've seen crude oil weakness, uh, it's clearly finding supports. It seems to have now found that lower bottom range in the low 70s. And in, in order for crude oil, to truly neutralize this nine-month down cycle, uh, I think we need a proper advance up into the mid-80s. That will uh, certainly trigger a number of uh, trend-following techniques to start uh, flashing green. You're going to have a number of technicians identifying a breakout, and that may be enough to shift the order flow to potentially give the bulls a shot. Uh, That is clearly not the case here below 80. And so uh, I think it's really critical to watch if the most imminent move on the upside could get started here. And uh, that's certainly something to watch into next week. Folks, if you enjoy Patrick's chart decks, you can get them every single day of the week with a free trial of Big Picture Trading. The details are on the last pages of the slide deck or just go to bigpicturetrading.com. This episode of Macro Voices was made possible by Respect Energy, a leading European trader of renewable energy and a one-stop shop for all green energy investors. Patrick, tell them what they can expect to find in this week's Research Roundup. In this research roundup, you're going to find a transcript for today's interview, as well as the slide deck provided by LAC, and then the chart deck we just discussed here in the post game. There's also a link to a number of articles that we found really interesting, so you're going to find this and so much more in this week's Research Roundup. Well, that does it for this week's episode. We appreciate all the feedback and support we get from our listeners and are always looking for suggestions on how we can make this program even better. For those of our listeners that write or blog about the markets and would like to share that content with our listeners, send us an email at researchroundup at macrovoices.com and we will consider it for our weekly distributions. If you have not already, follow our main Twitter account at macrovoices for all the most recent updates and releases. You can also follow Eric on Twitter at Eric S. Townsend, that is Eric spelled with a K, and follow Patrick at Patrick Ceresna. On behalf of Eric Townsend, Patrick Sresna and myself, thanks for listening and see you all next week.
That concludes this edition of Macro Voices. Be sure to tune in each week to hear feature interviews with the brightest minds in finance and macroeconomics. Macro Voices is made possible by sponsorship from BigPictureTrading.com, the Internet's premier source of online education for traders. Please visit BigPictureTrading.com for more information. Please register your free account at MacroVoices.com. Once registered, you'll receive our free weekly research roundup email containing links to supporting documents from our featured guests and the very best free financial content our volunteer research team could find on the Internet each week. You'll also gain access to our free listener discussion forums and research library. And the more registered users we have, the more we'll be able to recruit high-profile feature interview guests for future programs. So please register your free account today at macrovoices.com if you haven't already. You can subscribe to Macro Voices on iTunes to have Macro Voices automatically delivered to your mobile device each week free of charge. You can email questions for the program to mailbag at macrovoices.com and we'll answer your questions on the air from time to time in our mailbag segment. Macro Voices is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Macro Voices should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Macro Voices are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Macro Voices, its producers, sponsors, and hosts Eric Townsend and Patrick Ceresna shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Macro Voices. Macro Voices is made possible by sponsorship from BigPictureTrading.com and by funding from Fourth Turning Capital Management, LLC. For more information, visit MacroVoices.com. <laughs>